The liberation of occupied Europe had been the Allied goal ever since the evacuation of Dunkirk in May 1940, when 330 beleaguered troops were rescued from the advancing Germans. But the early years of war had dealt the Allies such a string of crushing defeats that any talk of a cross-channel offense was wishful thinking. Although Hitler had canceled his planned invasion of Britain in the autumn of 1940, his forces in North Africa and Russia had swept from victory to victory. By the winter of 1942, the tide had begun to turn. In Russia, German forces were trapped at Stalingrad and would soon surrender, a humiliating defeat for the Germans. In North Africa, the British 8th Army had beaten the enemy at El Amina. And in the Pacific Theater, the Americans, who had entered the war after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941, were making significant gains. The tide was turning in the North Atlantic, where German U-boats were being successfully targeted by heavily armed Atlantic convoys. By the late spring of 1943, Admiral Carl Duntis would admit to having lost the Battle of the Atlantic. It was a costly loss, for it would enable large numbers of American troops and supplies to pour into Britain. At the Casablanca Conference in January of that year, President Franklin Roosevelt had persuaded a reluctant Winston Churchill to establish a new Allied planning staff. Its role was to prepare for an invasion of occupied France. This is Emily Wilkins with the Evaluation, the New Age Book Club. And what you just heard is from a book by Giles Milton, a Brit. And its title is How the Allies Won on D-Day, Soldier, Sailor, Frogman, Spy, Airman, Gangster, Kill, or Die. And um, it's, it's really great to read from the perspective of another another uh, allied country because you know sometimes you're like well you know how much of this is true like was it really that crazy um because some of the stories you hear from world war ii you're like there's no way dude and it's not obviously i'm not saying that these world war ii vets are lying but it's just it's unimaginable like i i can i couldn't imagine so it's really so far it's been eye-opening um it's it's a great book um, and that's actually from the preface. That's not even from, you know, like a chapter. That's from the preface. So there's some really good artwork in here to kind of show you um, on the beach. You have, so every, um, the the forces that hit the beach, whether it was British, Canadian, or American, they all had code names. So it was uh, going from, the top down, um, it would be Sword, which is British, Juno, which is Canadian, Gold, British, Omaha, American, Utah, American. And you've probably actually heard that, Omaha and Utah. I mean, I know that those are places in the United States, but you've probably heard those referenced if you've watched any kind of war movie, um, even if you didn't know exactly what was going on. So the big thing was... The Germans had all of these huge cannons um, that they built on the coast of France. Um, so I'm going to jump in and I'm going to skip the prologue. It's actually a pretty cool story. It's about um, some, it's about a German um, 
a German girl who was forced to be a, she knew English and I think French. Um, and so they forced her to be an interpreter and she, and she, and, uh, she would have to write up all these reports. Um, anyway, so she knew something was up, but, uh, we're, we're going to start. It's called part one, know thy enemy. And this is page seven. Operation Overlord had been planned in the greatest detail, with every minute of the day accounted for. However, the success of the landings would be contingent on accurate knowledge of the terrain, weather, and German defenses. RAF aerial reconnaissance had provided much information about coastal defenses, but more detailed intelligence necessitated clandestine commando missions to the Normandy beaches. The French resistance worked hard to collect up to the minute intel about shore defenses and troop uh, movements. The Clavados branch of the organization Civil Etat Militaire used forbidden wireless transmitters to send information directly to SHAEF planners in England. So these are the shafe planners. Resistant workers, known as circuits, were awaiting a coded radio broadcast to inform them that the landings were imminent and that the sabotage operations should commence. So at this time, there are German forces, the 7th Army, uh, part of B Group, which was commanded by the Field Marshal Erwin Rommel. And he had just um, strengthened the Atlantic Wall but something that's important to note here is that the 21st Panzer Division was also under his authority. But the two additional Panzer Divisions could be released to Rommel only under Hitler's orders. Now the reason why that's really important to note is because that's part of the reason why the Allies won D-Day was because Hitler was a control freak. And he had to think about this. That's a, that's like the president of the United... He's a, it's just... It's the, like the president of the United States controlling movements of the army. You know? Um, crazy. You That's why you have generals. Uh, for those that aren't like huge into like military hierarchy. That's what you have generals for. But Hitler was such a control freak. He had... To have control and had to be the one that gave that order. So that's part of I mean, that's that's part of it. I mean, there's a bunch of nuanced stuff, which is why I'm reading this book. Because I love to hear all the nuanced stuff. But anyway, so I'm going to jump in, tell a quick story, and then we'll next week we'll continue on. But I'm just going to tell this story for this week. And uh, you let me know if you like the book so far. So this is uh, chapter one, Behind Enemy Lines. George Lane viewed his life in much the same way as professional gamblers might view a game of poker, something to be played with with a steady nerve, a dash of courage, and a willingness to win or lose everything in the process. His addiction to risk had driven him to join the commandos. It also led him to volunteer for a perilous undercover mission, codename Operation Tarbrush X. In the second week of May 1944, Lane was smuggled into Nazi-occupied France using the cover of darkness to paddle ashore in a black rubber dinghy. Now, for those of you that don't know what a black rubber dinghy is, I don't know if you've ever seen anything that has to do with seal. Uh, those are those are Zodiacs. But the old school ones that don't have uh, motors, I'm pretty sure, 
They're just huge rubber boats. That's what a dinghy is. Um, Lane had the air of quintessential Brit uh, a quintessential British adventurer, one whose tweedy facade would not have looked out of place on the great Scottish hunting estates. His hair was waxed in the fashion of the young Cary Grant and divided into two by a carefully sourced parting. There, the similarity ended. His stare was colder than any actor could contrive, and it was overlaid with a rigid sense of purpose. Lane would later recount his daring-do stories in an accent of such cut-glass clarity that it almost sounded fake. There was a good reason for this. He was actually Hungarian. His real name was, don't know how to say it, and his formative years had been spent as the member of a Hungarian water polo team. He had pitched up in Britain almost a decade earlier and had volunteered for the Grenadier Guards and at the outbreak of war. But his foreign ways and Central European background had caused officials in the Home Office to serve him with uh, a deportation order. Only swift action by his high-flying contacts ensured that his order uh, was rescinded. Absolute English in outlook and mentality. So thundered his mentor, Albert Bally, the dean of St. George's Chapel, Windsor Castle, who added that Lane had a genius for getting on with people. This was just as well, for he was uh, to need every last drop of genius in the weeks preceding D-Day. So the author goes on to talk about like, hey, honestly, he probably should have hated Britain, but actually it gave him even more of a fire. So now we're going to talk about Operation uh, Tarbrush X. Operation Tarbrush X was scheduled for 17 May when a new moon promised near total darkness. Lane selected a sapper named Roy Wold Woldridge to help him photograph the mines. With two officers, Sergeant Bluff and Corporal King would remain at the shoreline with the dinghy. All four were fearless and highly trained. All four were confident of success. The mission got off to a flying start. The men were ferried across the channel um, in the motor torpedo boat and then transferred to the black rubber dinghy. They paddled themselves ashore, landed undetected at exactly 1.40 a.m. The elements were on their side. The rain was lashing down in liquid sheets and a stiff onshore swallow was flinging uh, freezing spray across the beach. For the German sentries patrolling the coast, visibility was little better better than zero now i'm gonna back up just a little bit so um the reason why they have this mission is because they realized that um there was something in like in the water really close to the beaches like basically like in the water and on the beaches and they realized it was some kind of new mine. And they didn't really know the cap... They didn't 100% know the capabilities. Uh, the British or the, just the Allied forces in general. So they wanted to know, what are the, really, what are the capabilities? And if you take a picture, you know, hey, we'll be able to study it and go, okay, well, what new mechanisms are on this mine that make it different from Allied mines? So... Specifically, it says, its Spitfire had inadvertently dropped a bomb into the coastal shallows of northern France, triggering a series of spectacular 
detonations. And those, you know, all of those explosions that had been caught, they got caught on uh, reconnaissance film. So it allowed scientists uh, to assess them. But they were just so concerned, like, hey, this doesn't seem normal. So these guys are there, right? Uh, it's raining. There's no visibility. The four commandos now separated as, uh, as planned. Bluff and King remained with the dinghy, and Lane and Woodbridge crawled up the wet sand. They found the newly installed mines just a few hundred yards along the beach, and Lane pulled out his infrared camera. But as he snapped the first photograph, the camera emitted a sharp flash. The reaction was immediate. A challenging shout in German rang out, and within about 10 seconds, it was followed by a scream which sounded as if somebody had been knifed. Soon after that, three gunshots ricocheted across the beach. It was a signal for a firework display unlike any other. The Germans triggered star shells and very lights, two different types of flare, to illuminate the entire stretch of beach and then began firing wildly into the driving rain. Unable to determine where the intruders were hiding, Lane and Woodward, Woldridge scraped themselves deeper into the sand as they tried to avoid the bullets, but they remained desperately exposed and found themselves caught in a ferocious gun battle. Two enemy patrols had opened fire, and it soon became apparent that they were shooting at each other. We might have laughed, noted Lane after the incident, if it had felt a bit safer. It was almost 3 a.m. by the time the gunfight ended, and the German flashlights were finally snapped off. Sergeant Bluff and Corporal King were convinced that Lane and Woldridge were dead, but they left the dinghy for their astray or, or for their comrades, and prepared themselves for a long and exhausting swim back to the motor torpedo launch. They eventually clambered aboard, um, freezing, and were taken back to England. They would get their cooked breakfast after all. So now you have George Lane, Roy uh, Woldridge, and they're on sea, on this dinghy. And they do the only thing they can do. They drop the camera overboard, and they wait for someone to come and pick them up. And sure enough, someone does pick them up. And um, you won't believe it, but it was Field Marshal Rommel. Which, if you don't recall, Field Marshal Erwin Rommel was in charge of the 7th Army, where where we are in Normandy. And it's just this crazy story about Rommel and his interactions with Lane. And he knows he's a he knows he's a commando. And um and you know it's just kind of like a weird interaction because usually someone that high up wouldn't be having a conversation with a commando. And I mean he has breakfast with him. He sits and has breakfast with him. They are transferred to a POW uh, camp, um, but it's just a very interesting conversation, and uh, that's how I'm going to leave you. Uh, maybe next time we'll go over the Atlantic Wall. Maybe we'll go over more of just the history um, that's intertwined in here. This book is amazing. Giles Milton knows how to make history definitely fun. Um, just the way he intertwines 
all of the pieces because it's not just the allied forces that you have the french revolution the civilians and then you have the other component which is these german soldiers and then their their families and then also just german civilians that were dragged from germany to france to do whatever the german army wanted them to do um so that's all i got for you um, if you haven't, please go listen to the crap album. That's uh, the T H E C R A P P. There's two P's in that, and then album. I don't need to spell that for you. And yes, I can spell it. <laughs> but uh, the crap album by my friend Tony Shark, and that's Tony T O N with two E's and then Shark. Um, my friend Dom, that's his, that's his rap name. My friend Dom released an awesome album. Uh, also, So What You Saying, the podcast, uh, Sean interviewed him. And they just spoke on creative, uh, like, you know, creativity, where he gets his ideas from. As always, go listen to that. If you're looking for cups, I have several friends on Instagram that, um, that make cups. Everything from, you know wine glasses to uh your everyday like your coffee mug that you take to work that's insulated so hit me up if you need you know you need some cups um yeah go get this book this book is it is badass it's just good to have on your shelf even if you're not a big book reader this book is a book i'm telling you right now it i i don't know how much i spent on it i feel like it was more than i normally would yeah, this book is a $30 book, worth every penny so far. I'm at page 136. It is a long book. It's about as long as Flyboy, so I hope you guys are in for it. But, uh, yeah, I'll see you guys next time. We'll go over Limitless. I believe it's going to be The Why. Later.